Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, thank you, Jordan, and good evening, church. Uh, I want to start out with some really, really good news for you. I shared with our members uh, this past week uh, about an opportunity for us to move back to Brighton. And then I met with our staff this past week and met with our leaders yesterday. Guys, how long did we meet for? It was like six hours, five hours praying, talking, discussing with our church. Brandon had surgery. Him and his wife, Claire, were on Zoom eternally, you know, just with the meeting with us. But I've got good news for you guys. We are actually going to move back to Brighton. It is official. That's right. So we are very excited about that. Um, We signed the lease yesterday, and we are moving to uh, 1845, not the year. We don't uh, time travel at our church. Um, But there's some of you so smart that could help us with that maybe one day. Um, But uh, 1845 Commonwealth Avenue. And so more information on that to come, but just know that it's right off of the T at the Chiswick stop on the B line, right near the reservoir. So if you're in Brighton and that's like home to you, we are coming back. And we have been in this exile, but wonderful church for like ever. Uh, We moved out, I think it was March of 2020. And so now we finally get to move in, and our first Sunday is going to be August the 21st. August the 21st is the first Sunday there. To let you guys know, um, it'll be a little bit kind of feeling like it's like homeschool with the church. You know, we're going to have to work on setup and teardown, and Kyle and Emily are working on some what kids ministry looks like in that space. So just to let you guys know, uh, those services— we're, we can have our community join us. We love that. We, we love our guests to come with us. But just know that it's going to feel a little bit like we're trying to work things out because we are trying to work things out in that space. Uh, so we're going to work it out the 21st and the 28th, and then we'll be able to open up way more for the community come the fall. Sound good? So guys, let's just take a moment to praise and pray and thank God for his provision for us to move back to Brighton. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for hearing our prayers and opening up this opportunity for us to move back to Brighton. God, there's many logistics and things we need to work out and for us to navigate kids' ministry and worship space and storage and uh, God, but we just want to thank you for allowing us to have a place to call home for us to worship together in Brighton to invite our friends and neighbors be right off the tee. God, it's going to be great for us and the mission and I pray that you help us to keep our eyes on you and draw others' eyes to you and how good and gracious you are through the gospel. We thank you for hearing us and thank you for bringing us home. Would you help us to be good tenants? Would you help us to be able to gather there a long, long time? And if not, open up another door back in Brighton. But God, we thank you so much for your hand of grace for us to move back to Brighton soon. Christ, and we pray, amen. All right, that's the good news. That's a good way to start out the sermon, right? Because we need it. Because if you just read that passage like I did, it is a lot. James, if you know, uh, we've been in this book uh, of James studying it verse by verse because who cares what I have to say? We care about what God has to say. And he's given us 66 books in the Bible to know what he says. And James does not pull the punches, especially this week, okay? He's talking about your wealth and a warning to the wealthy. Now, you might be in the room thinking, well, I'm not that wealthy. But in fact, if you make 
$70,000, you are in the 95% richest percentage of the world. If you have an apartment that you can rent every week, 95% of the world. And so James's warning is not just for this ancient wealthy folks or this modern million billionaires, it's for you and I. Also, if you find yourself this morning, you're like, maybe I don't make 70,000 or 60,000, 50,000. Maybe you've been hurt by others not caring for you financially or finances are a struggle. Through this passage, God is saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I see you also. I see maybe the hurt that you've been through, maybe through the, some of the mistreatment that your family or your bosses didn't care for you well, and I'm gonna call them out today is what God's doing. So he's saying, if you've been mistreated financially, you're struggling financially, and that's someone else's fault, I'm calling those people out today to protect you. So God is a good God, a gracious God, and he's calling jokers out today, including you and me. You guys ready for this? Remember, this is James. This is not the book of Aaron. This is James, okay? It's what he has to say. Now, if you remember, guys, last week in chapter four, uh, James was talking about how some people trusted in their plans and not incorporating God in their plans. You guys remember that? What was the sin last week we kind of unpacked together? You remember? Presumption, that's exactly right. Presuming on God and kind of just throwing me out of our plans. This week, it's not about plans, but it's about your money. That you and I make financial decisions without the wisdom of God. Or it's not even about God himself. In fact, we trust in our riches or our possessions to give us comfort or escape or hope. And so last week, he called you out for planning. This week, he's going to call all of us out for money. You guys ready for this? Here we go, James. Chapter five, verse one, he starts out like he did last week. He says, come now. Oh man, he's about to call people out. Anytime you see him say, come now, he's basically drawing forward the people that he wants to have a conversation with. It's as if he's calling out with a megaphone saying, hey, you, come over here, sit close, lean in. I've got something to tell you that you sort of lost focus on or that you've forgotten. So he's saying, lean in, pay attention. So he starts out by saying, come now. And then he tells what group to come forward. He says, come now, you rich. Now, always like me, I thought growing up middle class, I thought that I was never rich. And you might be in a similar category. You're like, I'm not rich. I know rich people. It's Jeff Bezos. It's Elon Musk, it's whoever it might be. You're thinking millionaires, billionaires, multiple houses, and you take the word rich and you put it onto them. And so what I did, and you can feel free, don't do it during my sermon. Come on, y'all, don't do it now. Don't do it now. But you can go to whatcanwegive.org. And what you can do on that site, you can actually put in how much you make if you're an adult or if you're single or married or how many kids you got. And it works out a global cost of where you fall in with percentage. So you can type in what you make, and then it shows you what percentage of the world you fall in with what you make. And then it shows you if you gave 10% of what you make to the world, what kind of impact could you have? And it shows you that some money can go towards medicine or it can go towards uh, certain pesticides to make sure that we're not harming some crops. And then it lets you know how many lives you can potentially save with you giving to certain organizations. And so it has a number. You can save three lives. You can save four lives. You can save 10 lives. And so it's interesting that I never thought, like you may not think that you're not rich, but James is saying again, you and I are in some of the top percentage of the world. Are you educated? Do you pay rent? 
Do you have a job? Are you able to have a meal or two a day? Do you have excess? Can you buy shoes? And do you have running water? That's not excess, but do you have extra food, extra drink? Do you have a wine or an alcohol budget or a video game budget or an entertainment budget? You know what that says to us is that we are rich. So what's James saying? Come now, you rich. Man, he's aiming for us. And as you know, James, he's not going to let any of us off the hook today. So what's the problem, though, with being rich? Is there a problem? There's not a problem with having money. There's no problem with having money. But what is the problem? If that money has you, is it wrong to have possessions, belongings? Nope. But do those possessions or belongings have you? The issue that James is going to unpack today is that we hoard lots of things when other people are hurting with less of things. We are hoarding much when others are hurting with less. And so James is calling out folks that are stockpiling their money, their possessions. They've got bins of leftover items that they used five years ago. It's just kind of sitting in their house. He's calling me out. He's calling you out. And he's going to start coming at us and saying, hey, are you guys just building your castles of comfort or are you building in the kingdom of God? So James is aiming at all of us today. So he says, come now, you rich. But what's next? He gives this really odd phrasing that makes us feel very uncomfortable with our modern Western culture. He starts using this Old Testament judgment language, right? He says, you now, you rich, you weep and howl for the miseries that are, not if, that, not maybe, that are coming for you. <laughs> like, welcome to church, right? Like, that's all what you need to hear this week, right? Like, the, it's a comforting language. You don't find that in this part of the text. He's using this Old Testament language referring to God's just punishment towards those who use their money in such a way that hurts others and deprives others from care. So he's saying that God is going to come with a hand of loving but strong discipline towards those who use their money that hurt others or deprive others from care. And so he says, come now, you rich, listen, you're going to weep and you're going to howl for God's hand of discipline that's going to come on your life. Now, if you're a Christian for a long time, you're sort of like used to some of that language. And if you're like new to Christianity, you're like, what did I just walk into today? For Christians, guys, we know that God is like a loving father that brings a loving hand of discipline when we go away from the ways of his flourishing. And that's what he's saying today. Not that God is going to strike you dead for your sin, because who was struck dead for our sin? Christ. So God's not coming to strike you dead, but to recorrect your path. Because if you're living this way of using your money to just serve yourself and find your value, worth, and comfort in that, then you're going to end up hurting yourself and others. So God's going to come and redirect that. And so he's giving this passage of judgment, if you would. He said, we're going to weep because we're going to, mourn, we're going to grieve something that God's going to do. We're going to howl means we're going to complain about it. And more often than not, what happens when we build our life around money is that God begins to adjust how much money or what happens with our money. A job change happens, a decrease happens, medical expense happens, and then we realize what? How much we depended on money. 
And so that might be God's loving hand redirecting where your heart is settled. Does that make sense? God is just, he's also good. And so he's gonna call us out if we're going against what's gonna be good for his glory and our flourishing. So he says again, you're gonna weep, you're gonna howl because you love money more than me and I'm gonna redirect it in your life. So James wants to address it, right? We know from scripture from 1 Timothy that the love of money uh, has its roots in all kinds of evil. If we love money and we find our value and comfort there, then it's gonna show up in every area of our life that's gonna hurt us. It's the root, loving money is like a root of all kinds of issues, 1 Timothy tells us. So James wants to address it and therefore God wants to address it since he writes his word through his people. So three questions we gotta unpack today. Number one, what does the love of money do to your heart? What does it do to your heart if you love money? Number two, what does the love of money do to others? What's it do to your heart? What's it do to others? Then number three, how does God's love towards you change the way you love money? First thing here, what does the love of money do to your heart? Verse two, it says this. He says, your riches have, and he says three things. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have corroded. Rotted, moth-eaten, corroded. And this says, there, and their uh, corrosion will be an evidence against you that you have laid up treasures in the last days. So do you know what James is saying here? He's saying that you and I have so much stuff that it's rotting. It's going to waste. Our stuff is meant to be used is what we're understanding here. It's meant to be given and stewarded and used for his glory, not stored up for our gain. Our possessions, your money is to be used for good, not to be stored up for gain. And this got me this past week. I'm like, okay, where do I do this? And so I ask you, where, where do you do this? Where do you and I stockpile our riches, our garments, our gold and silver? You may not have gold and silver, you might. And you might have some rich, fancy clothes like they had then, but where do you store this up? For me, I got to think, okay, I've got, I've got money where I do this. I've got more clothes in my closet that I don't wear than I actually wear. And then I've got bins of clothes for seasons that happen, that come along in life. And I just kind of store them away, right? I also have an N64 from like 1467 or something. I've got Super Nintendo. I've got a Wii. I've got a Game Boy. I've got a PS2. I've got all this stuff sitting at my house. I've got tons of stuff I just don't use. I've got music equipment. Uh, I led worship. I'm a terrible singer, but I led worship for a student band and my, my first student pastor job. I've got a, a nice Stratocaster Fender guitar, Highway 1 series. I've got a Marshall amp. I've got tons of stuff that I don't use anymore. Now, is it wrong that I maybe steward that stuff for my kids one day or you know, I can give that to the church? Is it wrong to like, have that stuff? No, but the question is, what am I doing with it? I'm just holding on to it. I'm letting it rot or corrode. That's showing that God's purpose of any possession is to be used and stewarded for his glory. So I do address my life. Where do you do this? Where do you just store in abundance where you know people in our city don't have? Could be entertainment, could be money, could be clothes. What is it that you have stored that others don't have? And how can we redistribute those items to others who are in need of something that points them to the gospel? But it's more than just stuff James is getting to here. Because he's not just saying, fix your stuff and then everything's gonna be okay. He's actually using those references, rotted, moth-eaten, corroded, remember those? 
he's actually not just talking about your stuff, but he's talking about what? Your heart. He's talking about that your heart has become rotted. It's moth-eaten. It's corroded. He's talking about your heart. Verse three says this. He says, your gold and your silver, they've corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you before God, he's talking about. And it says this, and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow, that's a lot, right? Eat your flesh like fire. What's it talking about? Well, what's rot do? What's rot do to wood? What's it do to a body? Well, rot begins in the heart. And then what's rot do? It spreads. And so what happens to the human heart? It rots. And then what's it do? It eats your flesh. It sounds pretty gross, right? If you've, if you've worked in the medicine field and you know someone who's had sort of a skin disease or you know someone with leprosy or you know the scriptural stories, it kind of eats away at your flesh. That's what he's saying. When you and I have this heart where we love money, it's like rot in our heart and it begins to spread to our mind where we make choices. It spreads to our body where we give action. And so James is saying, yes, your stuff is doing this, but your stuff is doing this because your heart, your heart has found its life in your stuff and the value of what you have. And so again, we're reminded in 1 Timothy 6.10, God's word says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving of money or stuff or escapism that money can buy that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs or many struggles or many issues. So guys, if you thought for a moment, like why do you and I store up? And by the way, just a side note, I'm not saying it's bad to have savings, by the way. It's not bad to save up for your kids for college or maybe they get married one day and you wanna help. That's not a bad thing to have savings. It's not a bad thing, but it's why you're doing it. What's your motive? And if we're like only saving and not investing in the lives of others, there's an imbalance here. But if you ever ask yourself, why do you and I save? Like, why do you and I keep, store up, and have more than we need? Why do we do that? I think a couple reasons. The first thing I think is because of security or fear. You and I are worried about the unknown. It's what's ahead of you. So we think, well, if I don't know what's going to happen, I might get fired at my job or something might happen to my health or you know, the economy is struggling a little bit and things are being a little bit more cost and I don't know how much things are gonna cost in the future. So I gotta store up. There's an unknown there. So maybe I can have a known here in my bank account and I can feel steady and secure about the future if I stockpile my money. So we save up money because we act like it's our sovereign Lord and savior. It'll help me into the unknown of the future. So I'll stock up, look at my finances, make sure I can pay for things, Money gets a little bit tight. There's a tightness in my chest. Why? Because my heart's there. It's where my hope is found, right? This makes sense to us, right? We stockpile because we fear the future. Sometimes we stockpile just out of greed. We want comfort and fun and ease. And what happens if I get rid of those skis or I get rid of those video games and I want to play it one day? Or I give away uh, this part of my budget that was for entertainment and I use it for, for, for giving or to support a neighbor. Man, I don't want to do that because what if I need that money one day to like buy something big or save up for that trip? Often greed makes us store. A big one also sometimes for us we don't think about is, is worth. We store it because of worth. Having more helps us feel like we're more, right? If I have the designer clothes and wear the right shoes and I have that car and can buy the new iPhone and whatever the latest thing is, if I have more, then I feel like I'm more. 
I can take trips and post about it and talk about it. And I kind of feel like I'm on the front lines of popularity with my friends. If I have more, I am more. So the more money I have, the more experiences I have, and the more valuable I feel. Worth is one. And I think some of us, it just might be as simple as we're just kind of poor stewards. I find myself in all of these categories, to be honest, where I've got to do the work of repentance. But poor stewards is like, our lives are just so busy that you just have junk in your house that you're like, I didn't know I had that. And we're just sort of storing it up. And we like, this is toys in my house. My toys, my wife's, you know, whatever books she has, like, you know, it's like my kids' toys. And we just like save it over a year. If you look at their closet, it's just growing items that are in there. And again, is that in itself an evil? No, but what James is getting to is what's evil about it is that there's so many that could use or benefit and I could bring the gospel message through that practical act of giving to others. That's what James is after. It's not bad to have stuff, but does that stuff have you? Are you trying to gain security from it, greed from it, worth from it? Or are you just a poor steward? You're not really mindful of the items you have, the extra clothes, the extra things. And what can we do to give that away, to point people to the gospel, how Christ gave his life for us. So not only does James teach on this, right? But who else teaches on giving or money? Jesus. In fact, if you look at the gospels, one of the more major themes that Jesus preaches on is what? It's money. It's actually a big thing he talks about, whether it's greed or it's sacrifice or it's storing up or it's our anxiety that comes from it. He talks about money a ton, The biggest section that he teaches on giving or money is in Matthew chapter six. I just want to read this to you. Don't zone out. Don't zone out. You need to hear James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is deriving this teaching from his brother Jesus. So you need to hear this loud and clear. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. And doesn't money bring the most anxiety? I mean, let's be real, right? If we don't get the annual raise or the increase, or we're looking for a scholarship, or we need that, you know, a grant to come through. We get anxious, man. And me too, guys, me too. I do too. And so he's saying, don't be anxious about your life. And then he gives you reasons and hope in Christ that we don't have to be anxious. So he says this, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on. And then he says this, is not life more than food, guys? Is not the body more than clothing? And then he gives you two illustrations. He says, look, just take your eyes off your, yourself for a second. He says, look at the birds. Imagine Jesus teaching this. He's like, look up there. Everyone's looking up and they're seeing different kinds of birds. Look at the birds, he says. They neither sow nor reap and they don't stock up or, or gather or store up in barns. Why don't they do that? Because your heavenly father, he, he feeds them. He takes care of them. And then he looks it back at them. He says, are you not more valuable than they? God's gonna take care of them. And they don't have to stock up. He'll take care of you as well. And which of you, by being more anxious, he even says, can even add a single hour to his lifespan? Like, what is anxiety even going to help you with toiling over your plans, he says. And he says, then why are you anxious about your clothing? So he pivots a little bit, gives a second illustration. He says, consider consider the lilies that are in the field. Look at how they grow for a moment. So everyone's looking at the lilies now that we looked up, we looked down. And he says, they neither toil nor spin. They're not anxious about working. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the fields. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not then much more clothe you, O of little faith? Then he concludes with a summary and says, therefore, guys, don't be anxious about anything. 
what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we do and how do I pay for this and grad school's expensive and how do I make it, how do I buy? I'm starting this company, I'm doing this thing. Help me with my anxiety. For the Gentiles, they seek after those things and your heavenly fathers knows all of what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Guys, from the scripture, we see that money itself, our possessions, it's a top competitor with God. It's a top competitor for our hearts. In two specific areas, money competes with our security, what gives us the security, a sense of stability, and it also gives us a place of meaning, of purpose, security and money. Some of us in this room, including me, we save up obsessively because it's our security against the possible tough day that's coming for us. Maybe our job becomes unneeded because we're in the tech field or the data field and something could happen with our job one day and we're, we're worried about that. Or what happens if I can't make this job? If I'm an entrepreneur, what happens if I can't get this job because I'm working on a PhD program and the money doesn't come when I'm done with the program? How do I do this? So we stockpile out of dependence that's our security. I can find myself there as well. Others of us in the room, we don't just stockpile, we spend money frivolously because we've got to acquire the most up-to-date status symbols and creature comforts because it gives us meaning and joy. We find life in it and money affords that. So in that text we just read, Jesus is addressing both of these groups. He first tells that group, the birds of the air, that's the people that see money, not God as their security. And so they fly around anxiously trying to store up the money. He says, don't worry about tomorrow because God is better security than money. Therefore, they don't have to anxiously store it up as if God doesn't exist in the future because he's in the future, just like he's in the past, just like he's in the present, outside of time, ensuring to care for you in this time. He reminds the second group, the flowers of the field. Those are the ones of us that don't see money. They see money, but not God as a source of their significance and their beauty. And so what they do is they seek to live out their lives to be joyful and meaningful and beautiful. And so therefore, what God is saying that, no, 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 I, I will clothe you. I will comfort you. I will provide for you significance in the cross. So you don't have to buy the nicest things or pay to have the greatest vacation or experience or travel to feel significance or important or comfort. He speaks to both groups. And what Jesus is really teaching here, guys, I want you to draw in. Maybe you zoned out. I don't think you did. You guys are doing great. But if you did zone out, this is what he's saying. He's really saying about stocking up and storing up on the treasure behind the treasure. Does that make sense? He's saying to store up on what really matters, what you're hoping that money brings, you're hoping that possession brings or that security of that thing brings. Look for the treasure behind that treasure, which is Christ. He provides the meaning, the security, the comfort, and the hope. And that's what he's pointing you to. So stock up the treasure behind the treasure, which is Christ himself. It's God's promises, it's his provisions, and it's the person of Jesus Christ, amen? That's what we must do when it comes to money. So what are we to do with it, guys? We invest in the kingdom by giving to others. That's what verse three says. Your gold, your silver, guys, they've corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you that you've not stewarded your life in such a way. And he says, here's what you've done. You've laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid it up here. 
You've laid it up on earth, not in heaven, not the kingdom to come. You've built your life for here, not the next one. And so again, the problem is not that we lay up our treasures, right? It's where we lay up our treasures. Jesus tells us again in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Again, James is getting this somewhere. And where thieves break in and steal, but don't lay up your treasures in heaven, but lay up your treasures, excuse me, don't lay up your treasures on earth, but lay them up in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy them, can't get to them, where thieves can't break in to steal them. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning, are you and I building our lives to gain comfort and significance here? Are we investing in the kingdom of God for heaven one day? Guys, we've got to think about this. You have been given the job, the money, the health, the education. God has afforded that to you. Yes, you've worked hard, but it was God's grace that allowed you to work hard and to give you the position that you're in. And God is using that to be a platform for you to make the gospel known and to bless others. And because God is good, that same job, the same degree is also benefiting you. It's allowing you to stand on your two feet. But we know that God is so good that he's just not giving you a little bit. He's giving you also enough to give out to others. And so what James is saying is, man, you're just laying it up on earth. Man, imagine if you laid it up in heaven, meaning you invested it in eternity, not just in what you can get here, but you invest in other people who will live on past this life. So what are you doing with your money? One really practical way, and guys, by the way, this is not like a tithing message about how you need to give to our church because we're struggling financially or something. This is about your heart. Where your treasure is, is what? Where your heart is also. So what's Jesus after? Your heart. Because he knows if your possessions have you, then he doesn't have your heart. You're a slave to those possessions. So here's a practical way you can detangle some of this. In your personal budget, A, if you don't have a personal budget, you need to get one, okay? You need to take the time. You can meet with Bradley, our treasurer. You can meet with Brandon. Both of these guys have some strategies and some ways to build a personal budget. You need one. You need a personal budget to steward what God has given you. If you don't have one, please make sure you meet with someone to get some help to create one. But in that personal budget, you can create a line item in there that says, I'm gonna spend X amount of money on giving away. I'm gonna give away to this nonprofit. I'm gonna give away to this church. I'm gonna give away to my neighbors and friends. I'm gonna create a ministry category. Maybe it's not, I'm gonna give to the church or some nonprofit, but maybe I'm gonna just spend X amount of money so that I can take out someone who's hurting and wounded in the church and I can meet with them over coffee or a breakfast or dinner. And I know that that money I'm gonna preserve for them. I'm gonna store it up so I can invest it in somebody else. And I'm gonna build into the kingdom. I'm gonna build in what lasts and that person's soul lasts. So I'm gonna invest in them. I'm gonna set aside money and my time and my resources and I'm gonna put it in that person because that person lasts, that person matters. You get what I'm saying? How do we think about using our money like that? I want our church to be one of the most generous churches in the entire city, not out of pride, but simply out of what God has given to us. That's my last point, we'll get that in a minute, but you know where I'm going, right? All of this is being done because of the ample sacrifice and generosity that Jesus has given to us. And then we do the same. That's one practical way that we can do this. So what's the summary? Store up the treasure behind this treasure, build the kingdom, not the castle. Last two points are a lot faster. Number two, we talked about already what's the money do to our heart? It corrodes it. It imprisons it, right? We talked about that. It rots it. Number two, a love to money, what's it do to others? 
This is really sad. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who worked for you, you kept back those wages. You lied. You were a fraud. You weren't honest. You didn't pay out to those employees. And now they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvest, oh, oh, I've heard them, is what God is saying through this text. They have reached the Lord of hosts. First, there's a word of warning in here. Your love of money doesn't just affect you, it affects others. And so in this context, there there were employers who were not giving well or honestly to the workers. And during that day, if you didn't get paid, you didn't eat and you didn't live. So it was a big deal to be frauded and not get paid because these wealthy that James is talking to specifically, they owned land and those landowners had to have people to come mow and harvest the crop and they didn't pay and they were holding back money for themselves and stocking up for their lavish lives. And they weren't caring for those who had maybe blue collar or jobs that just were trying, they were trying to get by. So there's a strong word here that God is saying, hey, I see what's going on. And there's also a word of comfort. If you felt like you've been mistreated by your boss, your employers, you weren't able to get the insurance because some sort of pre-existing health condition you have, you've been mistreated financially, you were scammed, you were promised a raise, you didn't get it. You're struggling financially. Someone took money from you. You wish they hadn't. They lied to you about something. God's telling you a word of comfort that he saw that. And he will also bring care, justice for you and will bring a discipline to that person, whatever that may look like in his sovereign, gracious hand. So there's a word of warning and comfort here. So if that's, you've been hurt by this, God saw and will deal with that to care for you. So we must be thinking just for a moment that that's maybe not you. You're not like stealing money from your employers or you're not taking money at work. You're not mistreating people in fields. You're like, they feel so distant from you. So you may not be committing this specific sin, but we do hold back money in other areas of our life. We do hold back from others that doesn't benefit them. And how do we do that? We hold back our time, don't we? We hold back our care because we're tired. And oh, that person, again, I got to meet with them. Or they're doing the same things again that we talked about last time. We hold back our time and our care and our money, don't we? In order to give more of that to ourselves, And by that, we hurt others. We hurt ourselves since we're replacing our hope in God with some other time or some other comfort or some other money. And so he says in verse five and verse six, James says, you have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Man, that's intense language. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. So guys, what does a heart consumed with the love of money look like? It looks like a self-indulgent heart. And self-indulgent means it's, it's, it's okay to have nice things or good things. It's okay to spend money on yourself, but is that what consumes you? When you think about how much you make in your paycheck, is your brain going to immediately go to, what am I going to get with this and how much am I going to spend? And when you think about your calendar of your year, do you think about, I'm going to go on this trip and I'm going to buy this thing and I'm saving up for this thing for me? How much of that goes towards thinking, how do I advance the kingdom of God? How do I serve my community? How do I love and bring the gospel to others? What do I do with what's in my pocket? Because what's in my pocket shows what's what's in my heart. And if everything's going towards some experience or some financial gain, and that shows what our heart is really about. 
And God is wanting to redirect that because no life and hope can be found in creation. It's only found in him as the creator. So guys, you, in verse six, you might not have condemned someone or murdered someone. And that's what the landowners were doing. They didn't pay, they didn't eat, that person didn't live. So that's what James is saying. Landowner, Rich, you're murdering someone. You and I might not be murdering other people, but we may, listen, we may be sacrificing them on the altar of our selfish desire. Here's how this plays out. You and I might not be murdering, but we are overworking. So what are we sacrificing? Your kids, your family, your wife, your roommates, the gospel mission. You're sacrificing them on the altar of your success because money matters most. This is super sobering to me. By the way, I like wrote that point for myself. By the way, that's like, if you benefit, praise God, but that's really, I'm not, I think like, how, how, where do I struggle with this? I'm not murdering, but I am sacrificing loved ones for my gain. And how do I do this? I overwork, spend so much time, maybe anxiously trying to gain approval, trying to gain stability for our church. How do I get back in Brighton? Missing bedtime with my kids sometimes. Missed a meal. Maybe I didn't play with them like I told them I would. I'm sacrificing my kids. I am lowercase murdering the relationship of love and care and trust. Super sobering for my own heart. Maybe that's for you as well. Maybe for you, you're not murdering, but you're overspending. So you're not sacrificing your family for success, but you are sacrificing the needs of others on the altar of greed and comfort and escapism. So we overspend endless trips, more stuff, latest this. We overspend buying and taking things that we maybe not need in order to put someone else's needs on the altar and we sacrifice their needs for our surplus. Again, am I telling you it's bad to take a trip? Nope. But I'm saying, are you only thinking about those trips when you're thinking about your money? It's not bad to have a getaway weekend. It's not bad if you're stressed for you to plan some time to rest and to get away. Jokers, I just did that like the past couple days. I went on a fishing trip in Tennessee with my father-in-law and one of my friends from North Carolina. We had a super busy summer and needed a couple days and we had planned the trip a while back because I knew it'd be busy, took some time off. Is that bad? No. But am I only thinking about my calendar about I wanna spend some more money here to help me decompress then where am I looking to to help me find rest and relief, right? Some fish, water, a boat, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. My problems just return when I return, right? So how we think about these things, what are we doing? Last thing is we may not be murdering people, but we are over-saving. We're over-saving. We're sacrificing the temporal needs of others in order to ensure our long-term comfort and care. We're over-saving. This is like this, endless need to stockpile and have more just in case whatever we're endeavoring doesn't go well. So we're worried about investments and we're about stocks and the right bank and the right interest rates, all things that would be fine to consider, but it shows that maybe that that's our security rather than God himself who already knows your future and has a good plan for your life. So we got to think about this. Where do we do this with others? We're not be murdering, but where are we sacrificing others on the altar of our comfort, our security? That was a really hard one for me to look at. So that's how money, that's what a love of money does to others. We sacrifice them. So last thing, right? 
We looked at what money does to your heart, what money does to others, we sacrifice them, but how does God's love towards you change your love towards money? That's the most important thing. We need change and we need real change and we need heart change. And here's what happens. Listen, when you see just how much Jesus loves you, not general you, like you and your story, your history, all of your struggles, when you see how much he loves you in your darkest moment of sin, but seeing how he worked and he served and he gave and he sacrificed and he still serves you, it begins to change how you view money. See, money never really works for you. You have to work for it. Money never really sacrifices for you. You have to sacrifice for it. Money seems to have a way of taking from us because we have so much to give in order to get it. But in the gospel, Jesus flips it on its head and does the opposite. Jesus is the one that works for you by living a perfect life so you don't have to work to earn your salvation. Jesus sacrificed for you that money doesn't do because he died on the cross for you so that you didn't have to pay the penalty for your sin. Jesus gave to you, which money doesn't give to us. We've got to earn it. Jesus gave to you, giving you everlasting, abundant life so you don't have to find life in money or comfort or adventure. In the gospel, we see how God gave himself to us so that we could flourish and be fulfilled in him. Do you see the righteous person in verse six? Notice it again. The righteous person in verse six points us to Jesus. It says to the rich, rich, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Yes, that's talking about this person or this man in the field that's not being paid and not eating. But that person can't pay for the sins of the landowner. So it points us forward to Jesus, the one who was condemned and murdered for our greed and lived in his life a humble, carpenter, blue-collar life, lived from room to room, had no place to lay his head, didn't have a place to call home, gave all the riches of heaven to step into earth, had minimal possessions, was even born not at a hospital, didn't even die in a hospital in order to give and to sacrifice and to serve all of us in this room. And when you see that he lived that way, but was still joyous and hopeful and dependent on the father, it changes the way you see money because money now is no longer a comfort to you because you see this man that can bring comfort because he knows what it feels like to not be comforted. And he brings all his comfort to you. And when we look at money, hoping it would be security that we can lean on, it helps me with my paycheck. It makes me feel secure. I have a hope for the future. I feel steady. I can breathe. Something's going to take care of me. I can look at the cross and say, man, everything that was against me was paid for. And I have a security. I have a future. I have a God that's going to ensure everything's going to work out for good. I have an eternal life. I have a heaven in the future that everything's going to be secure and work out because that man died for me. Money just doesn't have a grip on you anymore. Do I still struggle with this? Absolutely. Do you struggle with it? Absolutely. But when you and I see, see who Jesus is and what he's done, it shakes loose the fact that money would have value and worth and meaning and significance to you. When you truly see this, how much God loves us, how he was condemned and murdered as the righteous person, what happens? He will not resist you either, as the text says. He does not resist you. 
If our faith is in Jesus, you will not be resisted. Even in your sin of greed, you will be loved and forgiven and accepted. So my friends, if you're feeling like you were just punched in the face by James, you were. He punched you in the face and he pushed you on the rock of Christ, showing you that even though, yes, you and I have sinned in our greed, there's one that's lived in our place. He died to take our sin. And then he raised again to life to rise us again, to live a new way that our hope, security, comfort, adventure, excitement, worth, value cannot be found in money anymore. So friends, I'm not telling you to do better. I'm saying to trust better. Put your heart in the treasure of Christ so we'll not be found in the treasures that fail us on earth. Let's pray together.